With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings. Context of white supremacy. This is Justice and Gus uh, tuning in for another broadcast, uh, hopefully to share constructive information on what racism, white supremacy is, and how it works. Uh, chat room is closed today and will be closed indefinitely. Um, I will make a decision when I am ready to open the chat room up again. Uh, Justice, are you there? Uh, this is Dorothy Roberts here. Is that who you expected? Uh, I, yes, expected you to be there as well, and I hope that my co-host Justice is on the line with me as well. Justice, are you there? Yes, I am. Outstanding. How are you doing? I am doing fine. Outstanding. We're ready to roll. As you already heard, uh, I am very pleased uh, to have on the program today um, author of Killing the Black Body. Uh, she is a professor, law professor at Northwestern University. Uh, she has written numerous uh, articles that have been uh, published in uh, journals all over the country. Uh, she's actually written uh, other books um, besides Killing the Black Body. Uh, I'm very happy. I think she's going to have a lot of important information to share with us today. Uh, I feel like this is probably one of the most responsible shows I have done, uh, Professor Dorothy Roberts. And you've already heard she is here. How are you doing, Professor Roberts? Yeah, I'm doing well. I'm unfortunately on a cell phone right now. I'm trying to make my way to a landline, so I hope the connection is okay. I can hear you perfectly. Okay, okay. then I'll continue like this. I'm, I'm approaching a destination right now. I'm oh. sorry about that. My timing was a little off today. Not a problem. I completely understand. I'm very appreciative for you taking the time to uh, hang out with us today and share information about your fantastic book. So thank you. Sure. It's my pleasure. Uh, ours. The pleasure is ours. Um, could you share, I guess, any uh, constructive information or helpful information uh, with our listeners about who you are and the work that you do? Oh, sure. Um, well, as you said, I'm a professor at Northwestern University School of Law in Chicago, and I've been a law professor for 20 years now. Um, I'm also an activist and a writer, and in addition to Killing the Black Body, uh, Race, Reproduction, and the Meaning of Liberty, I also have a book called Shattered Bonds, The Color of Child Welfare, which are, um, that one is about race and the child welfare system. Um, and uh, I have been advocating for primarily for uh, women of color and reproductive justice. Um, and sorry, I'm on a radio interview right now. I'm I'm so, sorry for the disruption. Um, and uh, working in uh, to try to bring attention to racism in systems like um, the the um, incarceration system, uh, child welfare, uh, uh, criminal justice more broadly as well. Okay, outstanding, outstanding. Um, I am hopefully 
using this program as an audition to uh, have you back if you feel that uh, this program is constructive and not a waste of your time and energy. Hopefully we can get you back to talk about some of your other. Sure, episodes. I'd love to. Okay, and I'm settled now in a quiet room. So. Okay. <laughs> and, again, I'm sorry for No for problem. No worries. No worries. Um, but definitely I looked at some of your essays, particularly um, Adoption Myths and Racial Realities in the United yeah. States. Yeah. And I think my listeners would very much like to hear more about that. So hopefully this one will go great and we can have you back to talk about some of your other excellent work that I think is very important for uh, non-white people. Um, I guess to get started, uh, you are a black female, that's correct? Yes, that's right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, this program, uh, The Cows, Context of White Supremacy, um, I have concluded, unfortunately, that we are in a system of white supremacy, and the definition that I use for white supremacy is a global system of people who classify themselves as white and are dedicated to abusing and or subjugating everyone in the known universe whom they classify as not white. Uh, do you feel that such a system exists, and do you think that that is an accurate definition for that system? I think that system does exist, and I think that's an excellent definition because it highlights what the meaning of whiteness is. Um, I happen to be working on a book on genetics and race and the resurgence of the idea that race is a biological category, and so I've just uh, for the last month been writing exactly on this question of what is the meaning of race and pointing out that race is a political system. And one way of knowing that is if you think about what does it mean to be white, the only definition, the only you know, criterion for whiteness is that it gives you a privilege that nobody else has. There's no biological um, definition because who's considered white has changed over the centuries. It's sort of, you know, this privileged group and people have fought to be part of it um, def legally and uh, politically. And the point of being part of that group is that you are considered to be superior. You have privileges and powers that other people don't have. And there are a host of institutions and systems laws uh, in place, et cetera, et cetera, markets in, in place, all aspects of our lives in place to try to uh, preserve the power of people who are white. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that your definition was right on. Outstanding, outstanding. Uh, my co-host, uh, partner in this endeavor, Justice, um, she is 10, and uh, she, although she is not my daughter, if I had a daughter, she would be on the line with me doing this show because I feel this is incredibly important, especially for any non-white female uh, in the world. Um, mm -hmm. Justice, do you have any, uh, any questions that you would like to ask uh, Professor Roberts? I do have a, one question. Go right ahead. Um, what, what other well, – what you said earlier – what other mm -hmm. books did you read? Um, did you write? Well, um, 
Let me, let me tell you about my two main books. I've written some case books for law students as well, but my two main books are Killing the Black Body, which is about uh, the attempts to control the reproduction of women of color, especially black women, and how reproductive control and population control has been an integral aspect of white supremacy. Uh, and has shaped the way that we think about the meaning of reproductive freedom in this country. So uh, the, the struggles that women have had for reproductive freedom uh, for throughout the centuries have been shaped in this country by racism and policies that affect reproduction have been shaped by racism. And then conversely, those policies are a key element of preserving white supremacy in this country, um, both practically in the sense that uh, there have been efforts to keep non-white people from having children, at least when it wasn't profitable after the end of slavery to produce um, children who were the property of white masters. Um, but also in the sense that the idea that the reason why there's social inequality in this country is because people of color are having too many babies. That idea, which has been around for hundreds of years and was especially um, strong during the eugenics period, but also has continued through the 1960s and 70s in, in policies to this day, is a way of taking attention away from white supremacy and making people believe that the reason for non-white people's uh, in the unequal status is because of, it's their own fault. They're having too many children. And then that book led me to another book, uh, Shattered Bonds, The Color of Child Welfare, when I began to notice that not only were there policies that punished black women for having children, that, that affected their reproductive decision-making and their pregnancy, that there were policies that led to their children being removed from them after they were born at far, far higher numbers than white children. And so I wanted to investigate why it was that most of the children in foster care in this country are children of color and why black children and also Native American children are removed at far, far higher rates, why there are whole neighborhoods where high percentages of children have been removed from their homes and placed in foster care, and what was the political impact and significance of so much state control over families. And I argued that that policy to deal with the struggles of poor black families by taking their children away from them and putting them in state custody is a form of racism that also helps to perpetuate white supremacy. Also in very practical terms in the sense that it disrupts families, it disrupts communities, um, it, it literally places children in state custody. I mean, that's, that's literally what it does, but it also has an ideological impact, which is to tell the rest of society that black families, black parents can't take care of their children. And again, the, the reasons for the 
the problems that black children have, it's not because of structural inequities, it's because their parents don't know how to take care of them. And so those are the two main books I've published. And as I said, I'm working now on a new book looking at the rise in uh, genetic science that claims to prove that race is biological. And I think um, it has, again, a very similar effect of convincing people that the reason for continued racial inequities in this country have to do with something natural about black people, that we're naturally inferior. It's in our genes, not because we are uh, subjected to racist policies and institutions and systems. So those are, that's my trilogy of, uh, of books that, and I think, you know, some people have said, well, why are you working on genetics? What does that have to do with mass incarceration and foster care? And my answer is I think that, uh, I fear that this focus on race and genetics is going to be a way of legitimizing the systems like the prison system and the foster care system and the welfare system that um, keep blacks and other non-whites in a subordinated position in this country. So does that answer your question? Yes. <laughs> Good. But I, but I couldn't really understand it. You, you do or you don't? I don't understand it, but some of it I do. Uh, it, well, if you have any questions about it, feel free to ask me. I know that was a lot. I don't have any questions right now. Okay. Well, thanks for your question, and and hopefully you'll you'll be able to understand some of it, and then as you get older, you can. If you, if you are interested and care about these issues, which I'm sure you are, you'll, it'll become clearer and clearer to you. Okay. That is the hope. That is the hope. Yes, yes. Um, well, it sounds like she's off to a good start. Oh, she's phenomenal. She's an all-star at 10. I don't think I, was, uh, I, don't think I had her clarity at 20. But, uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. um, yes. I wanted to uh, touch your book, uh, Killing the Black Body. Um, I want, and I want the uh, listeners, uh, one term I would like them to keep in mind uh, during this broadcast, uh, Mr. Neely Fuller, Jr., population tailoring uh, in yeah. terms of the system of white supremacy, not necessarily looking to commit acts of genocide and killing every black person or every non-white person, but definitely looking to tailor populations so that you can control how many people are in specific areas. Uh, We don't want the numbers getting too high, so doing things to keep the numbers down to a number that you are comfortable with that will help maintain the system of white supremacy. So if you can keep that in mind, population tailoring. Yes, Um, Mm-hmm. Oh, go, go on. Go ahead. Oh, please, go ahead. And it's also known as population control mm-hmm. as well. And um, it's, I think it's very important, this is a point I emphasize in Killing the Black Body, to understand that in this country and also around the world as a result of policies 
um, largely originating in the United States, uh, the birth control and family planning have had a dark cry to them. And I think very often in today, uh, people think of birth control as being liberating and believing that there was a period where um, women got reproductive freedom and since then everyone has been able to make legally protected by the Constitution reproductive decisions for themselves. And many people don't know that from the very beginning of the birth control movement in this country uh, in the early 1920s, that it's always been linked to not individual freedom but alone, but largely and, and essentially to population control, to the idea that birth control, the purpose of it, uh, originally wasn't to give women greater control over their lives, but to control populations that were considered to be inferior so that they wouldn't have as many children. I mean, the birth control in the United States emerged at the same time as the eugenics movement in this country, and they emerged together. Uh, and eugenics was, um, is the philosophy that people uh, inherit their not only uh, illnesses, but also personality traits, and that it is because of inheritance that we have social problems, and therefore the way to solve social problems is to keep people with so-called defective heredity from having children and to increase the uh, procreation, the childbearing of people who, have, who are believed to have superior heredity. And so when birth control was introduced in the United States, it was introduced at a time where that philosophy was the reigning philosophy in this country. It was taught in colleges. It was the official policy of the United States government and um, most states in this country. Uh, half of the states had mandatory sterilization laws that compelled the sterilization of people who were considered to be genetically inferior. Uh, and um, the U.S. government passed immigration policy uh, based on a eugenics philosophy, at the time believing that Southern Europeans were in genetically inferior to Northern Europeans. And so the, 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 the influx of uh, Greeks and Slavs and Jews um, and Italians should be limited because they were considered uh, to be defective stock, it was called. Um, and so, uh, and then we can, can, we can look at the history of family planning in America and see that uh, it was used to target black women who were uh, sometimes not only given uh, without their knowledge or full consent birth control, but also sterilized. Uh, up into the 1970s, and there's, you know, there's, there's evidence to suggest that it continues to this day um, that black women are sterilized at higher rates and do not have fully informed consent or give fully informed consent about it. Uh, that's, that's controversial, but certainly there's very clear evidence that black women were pressured 
um, to be sterilized without their full consent through the 1970s. Um, and women on Puerto Rico, for example, um, there was a huge government-backed campaign to sterilize women on that island um, that went on for decades. So this is part of the history of birth control, uh, this idea of using popular, uh, family planning to control populations. Um, and I think it's important to recognize, as I, I mentioned earlier, that the the purpose is not just to physically limit populations. There's also a very powerful ideological message that goes along with it, which is that the government needs to limit the population, the, these populations because they're harmful to society and they're harmful to themselves. They're the cause of social problems. Uh, this is a very, very powerful belief that has infected a whole host of policies and just the way that many Americans think about social inequality in this country, the belief that people are poor, people are poorly educated, people are in prison, uh, people don't have jobs because there's something inherently wrong with them not that they're the victims of unjust social structures and systems and institutions, but it's, it's in their bodies that's the problem. And so if you think that way, then the solution is to keep more of those bodies from being born. And the harm is not just in, I mean, it, it is a major harm to control someone's reproductive decisions but it, the harm is spread even beyond the individuals who lack or, or have le less control than they should over their own bodies to affect the way in which people think about social problems and the need for social change. Because there's no need for, for social change if you think the reason for the problems is located in people's bodies. And then you don't have to change society, you just have to either lock up those people or keep them from having babies. And uh, for centuries in this country, that has been the predominant approach. Um, or at least it's been uh, a, a strain of policy that has kept this country from instituting radical social change and transformations that would, um, that would end white supremacy and end racist inequities in this country. Outstanding, outstanding. Uh, Professor Dorothy Roberts, Northwestern University. Um, I wanted to ask because I think um, many non-white people, uh, and that's one of the reasons that I have Justice uh, co-hosting now on the program, mm -hmm. many non-white people um, have um, deficiencies in language as a result of the system of white supremacy and education being withheld uh, or inequities in education that non-white people really have struggles in terms of reading a lot of the books that come out of colleges and universities and understanding. So um, it would be helpful if you can break down, because I know some of the non-white listeners um, before this program, they were curious about your work and they didn't really understand what eugenics is. Do you think uh -huh. you could 
could explain that uh, for our listeners? Sure. Yes. Your idea. Yes. Okay. Eugenics uh, is a a philosophy about um, society and human beings. Uh, it's it's a, a way of thinking um, that says that people inherit their not only their physical traits but their personality and even their moral character uh, from their parents. So this so these these uh, Characteristics are passed on generation to generation to generation. And so, and the reason why there are certain problems in society, like why there is poverty, why some people don't get a good education and don't, you know, have, aren't as smart as other people, they, eugenicists would say, why there's crime, all of these problems eugenicists said were caused by people inheriting bad traits from their parents. And so if somebody commits a crime, it's because they inherited traits that made them criminals. If somebody had an alcohol problem or substance abuse problem, it's because they inherited addiction from their parents. If somebody was poor, it was because they inherited laziness from their parents. Uh, if somebody couldn't learn or did not know how to read and write at grade level, uh, or they would use IQ tests and say they just didn't score high enough that showed that they had lacked intelligence, that was because they inherited that uh, stupidity from their parents. They also had a term they liked to use, feeble-mindedness. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, for somebody who didn't, uh, well, it covered all sorts of things. <laughs> you know, it was just a term they used. Uh, for people who they, they didn't like their behavior, they would say, well, they were feeble-minded and they inherited that from their parents. So the first aspect of eugenics is this belief that all problems you see in society are caused by people inheriting bad traits from their parents. And so then the next step in eugenics is to say, well, if that's the case, then we can improve society if we just keep people who have those traits from having children. Then they won't be passed down. And we can improve society also if we encourage the people who have the good traits to have more children. And so according to eugenicists, it was important for the government to institute policies that would do that. uh, even very harsh policies, brutal policies like sterilizing people. You know, if you, you have an institution full of feeble-minded people, people you've deemed feeble-minded, well, then the state should be able to tie them down and sterilize them so they can't have children. Uh, and we, don't, we should keep people like that from coming into the country. Uh, we should keep them from marrying uh, so there were a whole host of policies that were intended to keep people who were deemed to be genetically inferior from having children. And then that also led to the flip side of that, which is it's a waste of money to try to educate these people. It's a waste of money to have social programs for them. It's a waste of money to have social programs to try to lift people out of poverty 
because they're born that way. You can't change them. And so a, a, an important part of eugenic thinking is it, there's no point in social change because society isn't the problem. It's these people's bad genes that are the problem. And all the effort should be on just keeping them from having children, not trying to improve their social conditions because it's, it's, it's not the social conditions that are the problem. It's them that's the problem. And uh, that this was the premier way of thinking of biologists and policymakers in the 1920s and 30s. In fact, uh, the people in your audience are probably familiar with the Nazis and their uh, high, uh, hygiene programs where they, uh, before exterminating, Jews and others they thought were defective. They had policies to try to keep people, Jews and, and gypsies and others that they, the Roma people and other people they felt were inferior, uh, to keep them from having children. Well, they, the Nazis got these ideas from American eugenicists. There was a correspondence between the Americans who were developing this philosophy and instituting these policies and Nazis in Germany. And so whereas many Americans are aware of the Nazi re regime and its horrible consequences, uh, those same Americans are completely unfamiliar with similar policies. They did not end in the mass exterminations of people as they did in Nazi Germany, but they began with this same philosophy that there are defective groups of people who uh, the government has a right to keep from having children in order to improve society. And, and that philosophy continues today in, in many ways. Many people who do know about the eugenics era think, well, it, it ended after World War II when people condemned the Nazi atrocities. Uh, that led to a discrediting of eugenics thinking, but in many ways the, that basic philosophy, uh, again, I'm, I'm, you know, I think it's so important, so I'm going to repeat it again. I think it's critical to understand this, this basic philosophy that social inequality is caused not by unequal social systems and structures, but by the innate defect of the people who are at the bottom. That philosophy continues today. Uh, you know, the bell curve uh, was an explicit, lengthy uh, attempt to support that philosophy with so-called scientific evidence. It was a bestseller in, uh, in the 1990s. Um, there are, and as I said, there is, now a resurgence in interest in showing that race is biological. And I think many of the people who are doing that today will say, but we're not uh, going to attach to it the idea of racial inferiority. But it's important to recognize that if you believe it's all biological, you will not have the definition of white supremacy you started in this program. Your definition 
was a political definition. Uh, it wasn't a biological definition. And if you believe that races are biological, you are, it's a, it's a short step to believing that the reason why we see social differences among races is because of some innate biological reason, not because of white supremacy and, um, and the, all the institutions and systems and stereotypes and theories and sciences that have supported it uh, for centuries. Mm, outstanding, outstanding. Um, I, wanted to, uh, I wanted to ask because with the whole eugenics movement that you touched on uh, from the early 1900s, um, we see remnants of that today, as you touched on, and one of the, the key remnants is uh, Planned Parenthood. Uh, and you spend a, a great deal of time in your book talking about uh, Margaret Sanger and Planned Parenthood and the impact that they had on black people and making an effort to control uh, the reproduction of black people in this area of the world. Um, could you uh, inform our listeners about who Margaret Sanger is, uh, her connection to Planned Parenthood, and just how you see that um, relationship to racism, white supremacy, uh, with her work and the organization known as Planned Parenthood? Well, Margaret Sanger was a nurse who, in the 1920s, was a champion for birth control um, and is widely seen as the founder of the birth control movement in this country and, uh, and a heroine for many people um, who are reproductive choice advocates today. Um, and, you know, it's hard to know exactly what her motivations were uh, decades ago. I, I believe that she did have a concern for poor women who were having uh, baby after baby after baby without uh, any ability to control their own childbearing. And, uh, and I do want to make it clear that I think it is important for women to be able to control their own childbearing. Um, and I think that was an aspect of her campaign. Uh, unfortunately, as I mentioned earlier, her campaign was started in the midst of the eugenics period, and she, for whatever reason, uh, probably because it gave her a lot of credibility and financial support, she joined with eugenicists um, like the Birth Control Federation of America to promote birth control in this country, and, and many of her writings uh, express a eugenic rationale, a eugenic reason for birth control. Um, and so uh, she opened clinics uh, around the country, birth control clinics, uh, but um, she also opened uh, the first birth control clinics for uh, black Americans. Uh, there was one in Harlem. Now, again, it's important to note that black women and men uh, in New York were asking for uh, contraceptives. Uh, her birth control, the first birth control clinic was open for white women, and there was a, a demand for birth control. 
mean, black, black people, uh, women and men, W.E.B. Du Bois, for example, was an advocate for birth control. So um, it wasn't as if uh, she was um, pushing this against the will of black people, but the problem was that she justified it in her writings as a way of limiting the black population and limiting uh, people who should not be having children from having children as opposed to sticking with the view that this was an empowering technology so that women could take control of their own lives. And uh, the the Birth Birth Control Federation of America uh, was a eugenic organization and it is, uh, developed eventually into the modern organization Planned Parenthood. Now, that, that's the origins of Planned Parenthood. Um, again, I don't want to say that that is Planned Parenthood's current philosophy, although there are people involved with Planned Parenthood who do have a very eugenic philosophy. Um, it's a struggle that... I think people within Planned Parenthood are engaging in to try to rid the organization of that philosophy. Um, so uh, that and that that is a struggle. The struggle be, between the view of birth control as a form of population control and the view of birth control or contraceptives as a form of empowerment for men and women that has to be connected to social justice. Um, There has been a campaign waged primarily by women of color to move the way that we think about reproduction, contraceptives, abortion, other family planning in general, away from a population control view toward a reproductive justice view. And there have been many victories in in this area recently. Uh, Since I wrote Killing the Black Body, I think um, many, many more people understand reproductive choice as not just a matter of individual choice, but a matter of social justice that affects entire groups of people and is part of a more holistic view of um, injustice, inequality, white supremacy, anti-racism in, in America. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I want to make sure, uh, Justice, uh, do you have any, any questions uh, that you would like to ask? I have two questions. Go right ahead. What, what, um, what do you mean by inheriting? Inheriting? Oh, okay. Well, today... We know that many aspects of our bodies are uh, come from our parents through the genes that our parents um, pass down to us. Do you have you learned about DNA and genes at all in school yet, or or just maybe even from just watching TV or talking to people? Um, you know that that uh, the way you look, for example, uh, comes from your mother and your father. 
Right? Right, right. No? Well, wait. Can you say that one more time? Yeah. Okay. Some some aspects of the way you look come from your mother and your father. Did you ever think about that? That people, that children look a little like their parents? Yeah. Okay. So that's that's what I mean by inheriting, and that comes through genes. The um, the uh, sometimes they're called the building blocks that pass on information from parents to children to help to determine how children will look and um, and sometimes what illnesses they have. Now I'm very careful to say help to determine because a lot of people think that you inherit everything from your parents and it's a done deal when you're born. It's all, you can just look at your genes and know what you're going to be like, what you're going to look like, how healthy you'll be. I don't think that's true, uh, even though that idea is being pushed on the American public very heavily so that uh, I think it's hard to read a paper or watch TV, a TV show or uh, talk to people without hearing this idea that DNA determines your health, your look, and increasingly people are saying your personality. Um, and I think that that's just wrong, and I think most geneticists would back me up. Uh, the, your DNA determines, it, it helps to determine these aspects of you and your life, but it always, from the very beginning, is influenced by your environment. And so by itself, DNA never determines anything, I, only in very, I, I, I think I, I, there may be some rare, 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 rare cases where you could say if you have a, a particular gene variant, something is going to happen. <laughs> but it's, even with illnesses, your diet, uh, even the diet of your mother when she was pregnant with you, um, other genes you might have, uh, your, the health, kind of health care you get, all of this uh, also shapes, I think even more than your DNA, how healthy you are, how, how much you learn, what you're interested in, what your personality is like. And so um, what I was saying about eugenesis is, is that they believed everything about you was inherited, came from your parents. So when you were born, they would say they could tell from when you were born, the day you were born, they could tell whether you were smart, whether you were pretty, whether you were a good person, whether you would commit crimes, whether you would drink too much, whether you would like sports, whether you'd be good at sports. They, they thought they could tell everything about you. And there are people today who think that. And more and more, there are companies that are being formed that claim that they can tell 
from when a child is little, whether they'll be an athlete and whether they're going to do well in school and whether they're going to be, uh, in fact, whether they're going to be in a gang. In fact, there was a study that came out recently that claimed they could tell genetically who was going to be a gang member and who wasn't. And um, this, this is, I think, when you have these trends that we're seeing today where everything practically is being attributed to DNA and you have a trend that says we can tell people's race biologically, that we're going to see people put these two together and say, well, we can tell that a black child is going to do poorly in school and be a gang member from the day they're born. And again, why bother to improve the schools? Because it's determined in this child's genes. So um, that's what it means for something to be inherited. And yes, we we know, you know, so let me give you another example, Justice. You know that, you know, you see a child and you can look at their parents and say, oh, yeah, I see, you know, her father's nose and I see that maybe her skin color is a combination of the two parents and, oh, yeah, her eyes look like her mother's eyes. But you can't tell from the parents it whether the child is going to be a doctor or a teacher or a business person uh, or a thief. You, can't, the, you don't know. Uh, you don't know if the child is going to like to swim or to read or to fly airplanes. I mean, you just, you just don't know. You can't tell those things. Because the child is born with certain genes that she inherits from her parents, which, which explains why you can see those resemblances. But most of what matters to that child is going to be determined by the society that she lives in, not by the genes she's born in. And my fear is that more and more we're being told that black children's or and other non-white children's and white children's futures are determined by the genes they have when they're born, uh, not by the society they live in. And I think that that is extremely dangerous uh, because it not only justifies the horrible inequities in our society, but it also tells people there's no point in advocating for social change. You know, white, white supremacy is in our genes, you know, and uh, there's nothing to be done about it. And that, again, that idea that white supremacy is natural, that, that has existed since the 1700s at least. Uh, and, but, but it's also important that it, it was invented. That idea was invented around the, you know, the end of the 1600s. Uh, the idea that white supremacy is a God-given right, uh, it used to be 
in religious terms. And then science came in and came up with all sorts of justifications to say it's natural. That idea that it's natural for white people to have power and it's natural for black people to be servants, uh, that was developed to justify colonialism and slavery and to explain why you could have a country that has the Declaration of Independence that says all men are created equal, that we all have an, an inalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and yet you have slaves. How could you explain that? The only way to explain that was, well, they are naturally slaves. We didn't make them like that. That's how they're born. And that's the same, I mean, if you notice that, that same philosophy, everything I've been saying, it runs through all of these systems, all of these policies and these ways of thinking that social inequality is natural. It's, it's such, a, such a powerful and devastating way of thinking and we many people still think that way today and in fact there is i think and this is what my new book is about a trend that is saying we can now we can now prove it through new genomic techniques Uh, Justice, she said you had two questions. Do you have? Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh no, no problem. Nope. This is fantastic information. I'm sure uh, listeners are pleased to get constructive information and are learning a lot because I know I am, and I read your book. So, uh, Justice, you said you had two questions. So, uh, you have another one? Yes, I do. Um, can you speak up a little bit, Justice, so we can hear you clear? Yes. Um, what do you? When you were talking about Americans, what do you mean by Americans? Oh, I well, I was referring to it, – it might depend on exactly what I was describing as American, but I was referring to the United States. And to um, – I may have been referring to official policies of the United States government um, or practices within the United States. Um, uh, if, if I said Americans, I was probably talking about the people who live, uh, in the United States, um, and, uh, I may have made some statements where I was talking about a majority of people or the dominant way of thinking, um, and, you know, for all, I, I, all of the policies that I've mentioned that have been official policies or dominant policies in the United States, there has always been resistance to those policies as well. As I mentioned with the idea of, of population control, there have always been uh, people who have advocated against it. I mentioned the movement for reproductive justice led by women of color to change the focus on population control or to eliminate it, but to change the way we think about reproductive freedom away from population control toward one that includes social justice as a necessary element. So um, I, I may have been referring to uh, 
a dominant way of thinking about um, uh, of, the, of these policies in the United States, the United States of America. Mm-hmm. Do you have uh, another question or questions, Justice? Uh, I do not have any more questions right now. Okay. Please continue to think of some, and I will uh, definitely check out to see if you've thought of some other good questions. Um, Professor Roberts, I wanted to uh, touch on, because I, I thought this was very interesting, uh, very interesting and important uh, to share with our listeners. Um, in your book, uh, Killing the Black Body, uh, you talked about um, the whole sad episode of crack babies and uh, persecuting uh, primarily uh, black mothers uh, yeah. who used uh, crack cocaine during their pregnancy and the uh, attack where this was criminalized and many uh, attorneys, district attorneys, um, sought to press charges, uh, in some cases felonies, uh, and said that a primarily black female uh, who uses crack during her pregnancy uh, can be convicted of distributing drugs to a minor, which is a felony. Uh, you yeah. talked about that in your book, and I thought it was very important because you touched on the fact that a lot of the information around this, not only was it um, couched in very racist, white supremacist terms and images, but a lot of the statistics about the damage done to infants born with uh, crack cocaine in their system was incorrect and that they – you know, it seems from your book suggests that was grossly inaccurate in the reporting about how much damage and the long-term effects of children who are born with crack cocaine in their system or born to mothers who used crack cocaine during their pregnancy. Could you talk about that and just mm-hmm. how that su- seems to suggest uh, another way that racism, white supremacy, uh, is attacking black females reproductively? Uh, yeah. Well, I think um, what happened with black women who used crack while pregnant at uh, at the end of the 1980s into the 1990s is a good example of the way that racism and white supremacy affect both criminal justice policy in this country and reproductive uh, health policy. Um, this was a time when crack cocaine first came on the scene in inner cities in, um, in the United States, and uh, the press portrayed crack cocaine as a drug that was a black drug, uh, and very differently from cocaine, um, it was portrayed as a national crisis that required Uh, strong law enforcement, and one aspect of it was to develop this myth of the crack baby who was always portrayed as a black baby. So it was this idea that babies born to mothers who have drug problems are crack babies. In other words, the only babies that were affected by drug use by pregnant women were ba- were babies whose mothers smoked crack. 
when, of course, we know in this country before crack ever hit the scene that there were pregnant women who drank alcohol, smoked marijuana, you know, used heroin, uh, whatever, you know, a multitude of drugs. Uh, but they weren't, that wasn't highlighted as a, as a, as a criminal problem, as a, as a crime. And then uh, it was also the way that these so-called crack babies were presented, not as uh, innocent children who are affected by drugs, but as a threat to society. So there were newspaper articles that warned that there was going to be these hordes of crack babies entering the public schools, predicting that they were all going to be on welfare, predicting they were going to cost huge amounts of uh, money for medical care, uh, predicting they were going to become criminals. Uh, just what it was one article I cite where they'll call them a bio underclass. Um, and so it's a, just a, an example of racist stereotypes that singled out this one type of child affected by drug use uh, who was portrayed as black but also portrayed to have problems that no other baby affected by maternal substance abuse had. So not just health problems, but social problems. This, there was this myth that it was supposed to affect their brain so that they were incapable of social um, relationships, healthy social relationships. They were incapable of learning. And so uh, this, that, that myth by itself is so damaging because it, it told the public that, you know, that to expect that a black child was probably affected by crack and uh, would not be able to learn and was going to become a social pariah uh, or criminal or welfare dependent in the future, uh, painting a whole generation of black children as a threat to American society. Uh, and um, so then after that myth was developed, and by the way, you mentioned that this was a myth. I mean, there was absolutely, first of all, no evidence that you could predict that a baby whose mother smoked crack cocaine was going to have all these problems. Um, and then secondly, the studies that were done showing health problems uh, among these babies were extremely poorly uh, constructed. They uh, just looked at the babies and saw that they had high rates of low birth weight, uh, high rates of premature birth, and then, and then the problems have followed from that. But black babies in this country in general have high rates of low birth weight and premature birth. It's not because their mother smoked crack. It's because of the social conditions that poor black mothers live in in this country, including living under the stress of racism, which increasingly we're finding in better studies affects uh, the health of children. So, um, so the studies, uh, they have been completely discredited now. Um, but... 
there was a supposedly the basis for um, this uh, myth of the crack baby that then led prosecutors to go on a rampage against poor black women who had a crack cocaine problem to not get them treatment, but to prosecute them for crimes. And uh, around the country, prosecutors were charging these women with an assortment of crimes, including felony child abuse, assault with a deadly weapon, and distribution of drugs to a minor. Uh, the, The last one was based on the theory that after the baby was born, but before, in the seconds before the umbilical cord was cut, that the mother was pumping a cocaine metabolite to the baby um, through the umbilical cord, and that was a drug offense, distribution of drugs to a minor, illegal drugs to a minor. And um, these women were treated horribly. Um, in in South Carolina at a, a medical university there, uh, about 40 women were tested and arrested either during a prenatal care visit or right after they gave birth to their baby. Um, some women were literally taken in handcuffs and leg shackles still bleeding from the delivery to the jail. And uh, other women were kept imprisoned while they were pregnant and brought to the hospital in shackles for their prenatal care and then kept shackled to the bed during the delivery of the baby. And then, of course, these babies were taken from the mothers and placed in foster care. Some of them, there was a huge problem of what was called border babies, where babies were just kept in the hospital um, in rows of beds because their mothers were considered unfit to take care of them. And you have to wonder if some of these social issues that the nurses claimed to see that the babies were unresponsive and weren't bonding maybe had to do with the fact that they were lying in a hospital bed instead of being nursed and cared for by their mothers. So it was a, an extremely damaging policy that I argue in Killing the Black Body was essentially punishing these women for having babies. It wasn't about protecting the babies. Uh, you know, if, if, if the, the states were concerned about the health of these babies, they should have been getting the mothers drug treatment and supporting the mothers as they cared for the babies, not taking the babies away from their mothers and throwing their mothers in prison. Now, you don't care for, for newborns by taking them from their mother at birth and throwing their mother in jail. That's not, that's not how you show love and care for a child. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think this was all about punishing these women because it was felt that they did not deserve to have children. And um, out of these prosecutions came some very harmful policies that affect all women in the state, potentially, like in South Carolina, where a judge 
held that a fetus was a child, a viable fetus was a child for purposes of the child abuse statute. Um, well, that means that any pregnant woman could potentially be charged with felony child abuse if a prosecutor uh, can convince a jury she did something that risked, you know, risked harm to the baby. That could be that she was working or, you know, that she was jogging or whatever, you know, it could be, who knows what it could be. But um, uh, I, I, so it, it led to laws and policies that are very harmful to women in general, um, but uh, the, the women who are most at risk for prosecution are uh, poor black women. Again, Professor Dorothy Roberts, uh, Northwestern University. I want to uh, take some calls if you would like to call in to ask Professor Roberts uh, questions about her book or things she shared with us on the program. The number is 347-215-6071. Again, it's 347-215-6071. Before we take some calls, just wonder because you have so many uh, just incredible uh, passages and just extraordinary amounts of constructive information in your book, Killing the Black Body. Uh, on page 186, uh, you said that the belief that putting pregnant at, pregnant addicts in jail will help their children is grounded in a naive faith in the neutrality of the criminal justice system. Uh, Professor Kennedy's premise that blacks benefit from greater law enforcement overlooks America's history of using criminal laws to subjugate blacks. Slave codes created a separate set of crimes for slaves that were sanctioned by public punishment not applicable to whites and included behavior that was legal for whites. The law defined as criminal any conduct performed by blacks that threatened white supremacy, such as learning how to read and write. This is a direct quote from the book, page 186, Killing the Black Body. This is a book you all should go purchase and read. Um, Very constructive information. Um, Before we go to the phone lines, I wanted to ask, um, because you do mention, uh, excuse me, mention uh, Professor uh, Randall Kennedy. Uh, He's at Harvard. um, And you talk about different black people who have been advocates of these programs uh, to criminalize uh, mostly black mothers who have used crack cocaine during pregnancy and uh, family caps on uh, black families that are on welfare that have four children. Um, And you address the black people who say, hey, these are good things. These are things that help uh, the black family, this is not racism. This is, you know, working against racism to help uh, the black community. Um, I was going to talk about that. I will give you the option to either address that or uh, Norplant uh, and all of the harmful effects that that drug has had on black people. Uh, whichever one you think is more important uh, to share with our listeners, go right ahead. Well, I, I, I'm glad you raised that issue because of uh, blacks who disagree on these policies. I mean, there's always been disagreement within the black community about the best way to uh, 
attack racism and white supremacy. You know, there's a famous uh, uh, W.E.B. Du Bois uh, debate with Booker T. Washington on uh, how, what's the best way to lift up black folks after um, emancipation. Uh, and the, the you know, even we, you know, we have black conservatives in this country who support very conservative um, economic policy as well as uh, blacks across the spectrum. So uh, just like, you know, the race does not necessarily determine the way that you uh, feel about these issues or the way that you see the, as the best route to uh, addressing racism and white supremacy. Um, I, I think, though, that, and I'm finding this now with this new book I'm doing on genetics, there are uh, blacks who have come out supporting a drug, uh, the first race-based drug, a, a heart therapy for black people um, on the grounds that this is good, that finally the FDA is paying attention to black people's health issues. Um, and I think Professor Kennedy at Harvard felt that these policies punishing black women were uh, an effort to protect the children. Mm. But, uh, you know, uh, part of my work, I, I hope, is to, it really is directed not to, you know, people who are staunch white supremacists and racists who aren't, aren't going to care what I say anyway. It's to people who want to see an end to white supremacy and racism and uh, in my view may not understand how these systems work you know so um, I, I, I think that uh, part of what I like to do is say you know to some people you I know your heart's in the right place but you you're not seeing clearly how this that is working I mean how can first of all all of these systems the prison system, the foster care system, for example, if, if they are, if I see an institution that is state created, that is made up mostly of black people, I, my, I first have to be suspicious of it because we know that we have a history in this country of institutions being created separately for black folks that are inferior and that are designed to uh, perpetuate white supremacy. Um, you know, you have to wonder, well, if it's so good, why why aren't more white children in that system? You know what I mean? If, it, if it's so good, with fo that's what I wonder about foster care. If foster care is so good for families, why don't we see white neighborhoods where one out of ten children are in foster care? If we saw that, there would be a huge uproar and people would see that it's destroying families. And so, you know, Randy Kennedy, I, I think he means well, but I, I, I just think he's wrong when he sees law enforcement locking up black mothers as a way of protecting their children. You just have to, you have to also ask, why do they choose that method? Aren't there other less harmful methods? You want to help, you know, are there less harmful methods to do it? I ask the same thing with foster care. When, when white, most white families that have 
problems of child maltreatment, they are served by, I'm not saying adequately, because the, the social programs in this country are inadequate and shoddy, health care, social welfare in general, it's bad for everybody. But it treats white people better. But part of what's important to understand is part of the reason why it's so horrific in this country, why we're behind every other industrialized country in terms of our health care system, our social welfare system, is because of racism and white supremacy. Because to maintain white supremacy, white people will accept an inferior institution if it maintains white supremacy. W.E.B. Du Bois pointed this out in his book, uh, Black Reconstruction, where he asked why is it that poor white laborers didn't join with freed slaves to get better rights for workers in this country? And he, his answer was because the poor white laborers preferred to have what he called the psychological wage of whiteness, of white privilege over joining ranks with blacks. And so they would prefer to have inferior benefits for labor uh, if, it, if that's what it takes to maintain white privilege. And I, I think, uh, you know, for me, People have said, well, you, just, you see race and everything, but I, I really think that the answer, or at least a, an important answer to why we, we don't have universal health care in America, why we have a huge foster care system but less money spent on services directly to families, why we have the largest prison population in the world uh, is because of racism. And, and uh, all of these institutions are seen as a way of maintaining white supremacy when uh, they actually hurt, in the end, they hurt white people. Uh, but it's, you know, it, it, people may decide, though, that they would rather maintain a privilege, what, what Du Bois called a psychological wage, over good health care. You know, if that good health care is going to extend to black people, they would rather have a bad health care system. And see a system that extends to non-whites, that all that will improve the status of non-whites. Wow. Uh, It's powerful. It's very powerful. Yes, yes. That's that's why, you know, the focus of your program is, is so important. People... They, you know, I find that people don't want to. They, they even don't even want to mouth the words <laughs> white supremacy. Yes, ma'am. I mean, people yeah. are afraid to say that. They don't want to acknowledge the continued power it has in our society. Yeah. But it, how how else do you explain the? the brutality and the inequities we have in America when people espouse freedom and equality and, yet, and they can believe that, that, that 
that exists in America, how can you believe that exists and then read the statistics about black death, you know, the infant mortality, black infant mortality rates and the incarceration rates? How, how do people process that? You know, it, it's, a, it's, it's a really a, a pathology. You know, how, do people, how can you process that? The only way you can process that, to me, is if it's natural, it seems natural, so you've been convinced that that's natural. That's just the way the world is. Uh, unfortunately, um, the evidence suggests that many people, as you said, do feel that white supremacy is natural and this is the way it is supposed to be worldwide, uh, whether it's uh, black people being forcibly sterilized or uh, locking up every other black male that we see. This is the way it's supposed to be to maintain the system of white supremacy. Um, yeah, and they, they may not, I think most people will not, they don't even, they'll say, I, I, I don't even know what white supremacy is. You know, they'll say, I, of course I'm not, I don't believe in that. I don't support that. But they don't, that's, it's, it's because it's so natural, it seems so natural that they don't see it. Mm -hmm. I, I particularly see that with uh, non-white people, which is uh, why I have this program and why I'm ecstatic that you came here. And again, we're auditioning to get you back because if I didn't even know about the third book that you're working on now, but for sure, uh, you need to come back to the program to share more information. I am certain uh, people are listening in. I'm going to get to the phone lines now. Um, again, I'll give them the number uh, so you can call in, 347-215-6071. Uh, uh, when I go to the phone lines, please, no speakerphone because it disrupts the quality of the program. Um, I will call out uh, whichever area codes that I see first and just go down the line. So when I call you out, have your question or comment for uh, Professor Roberts, and we'll get to the phone lines. Uh, we're going to take a quick one-minute commercial. Before I do that, I did want to ask very respectfully, uh, Professor Roberts, um, yeah. what is uh, your mother's name? Iris. Iris. Is it Roberts? Iris Roberts? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Uh, we want to definitely take a moment of silence before I get to uh, the commercial. Uh, mothers are very important, and Iris Roberts, huge contributor to today's program and having Dorothy Roberts here with us to share incredibly important information. Definitely want to take a moment of silence to recognize Iris Roberts uh, and thank her for today's program as well. She was a major contributor. We're going to take a quick moment, one commercial, and we'll be right back. Is racism hurting you? On issues of race, are you unable to speak, think, and act with clarity and confidence? Are you tired of laughing when nothing is funny, smiling when you are not happy, agreeing when you really disagree? At 
counterracism.com, you can learn specific strategies and techniques to counter the behaviors of the people who practice racism in all areas of activity. Using words correctly, following counter-racist logic, even counter-racist science projects designed to reveal what racism is, how it works, and how to counter it. The open source code writing format allows you to pick and choose from a variety of counter-racist suggestions so you can produce the code that works for you. Stop by counterracism.com today and help replace racism with justice. That's counter-racism.com. As I suspected, this program has been very constructive. We have a ton of callers on the line. We're going to be very codified in how we do this. I'm going to call out the area code, ask your question or comment. Everyone who called in, you are on the line, so please be quiet so we can preserve the quality of the program so everyone can be heard. And uh, please, no speakerphone. If you're on speakerphone, please, if you could turn that off, that would be very helpful. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to start at the top, 301. Are you there? Hello, Gus. This is Jamal. How are you doing? I'm very well, sir. Go ahead and uh, ask your question or comment, whatever you have, sir. Yes. Uh, I wanted to ask a question is about the eugenics. I kind of see it as, a, um, as a, like, if you can, if I have a question, it's more like the sports. Like, for instance, if you look at football, baseball, and basketball, um, I was on a train with a guy, and he was saying, man, I I wish we had more white athletes that was at the top of the, you know, at the top of the, uh, you know, at the top of the sports again. And I asked him, he said, I asked him why, and he said, man, he just said, I love black athletes, but I just like to see myself. Now, I was looking at a program maybe a couple of years ago about about something talking about, you know, you know, trying to make your, your kid a better athlete. And these are mostly white people trying to figure out, well, how can I make my kid a better athlete? Hello? Hello? Yes, sir. We yeah, I'm here. Oh, mm-hmm. okay. and the question I ask is the eugenics thing is using it trying to find out how they can, you know, uh, better themselves instead of at the same time destroying us too? Well, it's interesting you should bring up sports. Well, okay, so eugenics um I think when you when you say eugenics in particular as opposed to genetics, genetics. eugenics has in it the idea that you are going to attempt to improve society by encouraging some people to have more children and discouraging others from having children. Um, now you could apply that you could apply that to sports. So if you believe that a certain group is good at sports, you could incur and you want you want them to play sports more, you encourage them to have more children. Um, or to take or you if you believe that you can um, identify the genetic traits that make people better at sports, you know, nowadays you can select for genes, certain kinds of genes in an embryo and have that embryo implanted. And they're doing that now for certain diseases, but people who believe that genes determine sports ability, you know, in the future might select for sports ability. Okay, but that's all basic. You have to believe, though, that sports ability is determined by genetics. And it's linked to race because people tend to point to sports to say, well, here's proof 
that race is biological. Right. Just look at the at the at the football teams and the basketball teams. They're filled with black people. That proves that black there's some black gene for sports ability. Uh, it, it's only in black people. So black people must be biologically separate as a race. Well, the problem with that is that if you look across all sports globally, right. and you look at even particular sports like basketball historically you will see that people of various different groups do well at various sports. And even in basketball, it used to be that Jews were, the, were stars of basketball in, you know, in some places. Uh, today, they're considered uh, stereotypically not to be good at sports. You know, they're good at other things. Um, these are stereotypes that have developed that have to do with as far as I'm concerned, the social conditions that make, that, that push people into certain sports as opposed to others and that make them want to do well at sports. I think that black people do well at basketball because they have access to basketball and they have a huge incentive to do well at basketball. If they had as huge as incentives to do well at becoming the CEO of a company, they would do well at being a CEO of a company. But, you know, the, the, the skills for basketball, the same skills you need for volleyball. Why aren't black people dominating volleyball? Because nobody plays volleyball in their neighborhood. Right. You need a net. <laughs> you need a net for volleyball, but you could go on the corner and see the basketball hoop. Right. I mean, it's it's... It's, it's the idea that it's linked to some race-based gene is just, it's just false. There, there are white people who excel at life. They excel at, at ice hockey, and they excel at swimming. Right. You know, we used to say, oh, well, you, the Soviets is excel at girls' gymnastics. Now, last year it was the Chinese who did. Well, did their genes change, or is it that the Chinese government put a lot of money into training Chinese girls to be good at, at gymnastics so they would excel when the whole world was watching them. I have a one Hold on one second because we have a lot of callers, so if you, can, you can hang on the line and uh, I was going to just say the reason why I brought up that question is because of – Well, hold on one second because we do – I mean, we have a lot of callers today. Um, All right. 954. Well, well, 954, are you there? Yes, hi. Hi, how you How doing? are you? Okay, I'm well. this is good. This is Diva JC. And Greetings. I'm really enjoying, yes, I'm really enjoying this conversation. But I want to rewind, uh, you know, I don't have the doctor's name, Dorothy Roberts. Dorothy Roberts. Okay. Roberts. Yes. Huh? I, I must read some of your books right now. I'm reading Houston Baker, um, you know, Betrayal. I don't know if you're familiar with it, how black intellectuals have betrayed the black community. But right now, I want to say that everything that I hear you talking about goes back to male supremacy, you know, because in the beginning a lot of women don't know, and somebody sent me an email saying that women created marriage for, you know, to hold men down. Not true. Men created marriage to <laughs> claim the children from the marriage who would work on their farm. You know, that's how marriage got created. And the whole idea of separatism, competition, possession, and ownership 
is a male construct, whereas women are tied up with, uh, you know, nurturing uh, inclusion. I mean, on the overall, you know, I mean, there are gray areas in, in both ways. But I want to say this, that what do you think about this influx of uh, homosexuality where women are not being married to men. Men hold the purse strings, and women are moving further and further down on the the economic rung because of this homosexuality. And uh, even homosexual women don't have the money that homosexual men have. And black women are on the bottom rung of that, you know, paradigm. What do you think about that? Well, so first let me say that I, I, I agree with some of what you said and I disagree with some of it. So I, I absolutely agree that uh, white supremacy and patriarchy or male supremacy go hand in hand. And you're right that many of the policies I've been talking about are promoted by um, combining racism uh, white supremacy and control of women. I mean, the, the reproductive justice uh, issues I discussed or the population control policies are almost entirely, um, with some exceptions, policies that are about controlling pregnant women and controlling women's decision-making. So the, the reason why, part of the reason why they are in place is because of a history of male control of women's bodies and decisions. Um, and I could, um, th this is a point I make in Killing the Black Body, that it is a, a combination of uh, white supremacy and patriarchy that permitted slave masters to control the bodies of their uh, enslaved uh, women that they, that they owned. Um, exactly. And I, I don't have time to go into all those, but I, I think for um, many, many of these policies I'm talking about, you're absolutely right that gender, um, sexism, male supremacy um, work together with white supremacy to, um, to enforce these policies. Now, um, I, I don't think, though, that you can attribute uh, the women's poverty to homosexuality um, that, you know, if you take, for example, black women, black women are, are not getting married. Um, and part of why they're not getting married. Well, they don't have no men. Right, exactly. Yeah, okay. I mean, it goes hand in hand. They're heterosexual, but they're, the, the unemployment rates and, and incarceration rates of black women are so high that uh, black women um, are are not uh, are, they're, they're not they're not only are they not finding men that it would be economically you know feasible to marry, but if they if they marry these men, um, it's not it's not going to improve them, their life uh, economically. In fact, it it may be an economic burden on them. And I'm not saying that to at all to disparage the men. Um, it's just a, a fact that that their 
um, employment and um, prospects are so poor in in many black communities. Um, and so if if they were economically better off, um, then marriage would be a means of improving the women's um, financial uh, status. But you know, I don't think that I don't think that women should have to rely on marriage in order to be able to have the means to take care of themselves and their children. Um, it's it's you know part of the. I mean, it's it, you started out with talking about how the the institution of marriage, its purpose was not to benefit women. So we couldn't expect that marriage should be the answer to women's um, economic problems. Well, but the burden. Hold on one second. Hold on one second. Hold on one second. Hold on one second, please. Nine four four. Hold on one second. Okay. We have a lot yeah. of. Yeah, and you know what? I I need. I'm gonna. I thought. I thought we were gonna be on for about an hour. So I really am gonna have to go in like five minutes or so. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm uh, really sorry. I didn't no realize problem. the program was was so long. I'm I'm sitting here in somebody's bedroom at a at their um, birthday party, and I haven't even seen. <laughs> My ball. We want you to get to the birthday party. If you could uh, take one or two uh, other calls, uh, then we'll let you get to the party. Thank you for hanging out with us. Um, sure. Uh, let's see. Nine one six. Are you there? Nine one six. Okay. Three one three. Good afternoon, Dorothy. Hi. Who's this? <laughs> this is Adewa. You don't know me. Oh. But I, um, I, um, when I first looked at your book, the title of your book, The Killing the Black Body, I didn't mm-hmm. think that it was just primarily centered around women and the des- desecration of women. But I just wanted to add to this, Dorothy, is that I'm in Detroit, Michigan, in the urban concentrated poverty. Mm-hmm. And uh, I have noticed that I see a, a large number of amputee men, black men who have their legs amputated. I've even seen them all the way up to the waist. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying every day I see going and coming because I use the bus, I see men two and three wheelchairs on the bus, and they don't have appendages. And I'm wondering, I know you're dealing with female, but this also impacts our men. Oh, sure. Yes, yes, right. So that, you're right, Killing the Black Body, I was focusing on the population control policies targeted at women. Um, uh, What do you think is, do you think if these are health issues, you think it's gunshot wounds? I I do not think they're health issues. I think that this is just what you're saying, killing the black body. I mean, well, what can a man do with no legs? You know, there is, I am... Men look like out they, have the, been cut, they don't have... They carry the bag for the right. waist. They, I, I don't think they have genitals. You know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look into this because, you know, I've talked about this third book I'm working on now on um, this rise in referring to race as a biological category. And one of my chapters is on this 
push for race-based medicine, which is linked to the argument that the reason why black people are in such bad state health-wise is because of our genes, as opposed to because of the racism, the poor health care, the environmental toxins, um, and on and on that are targeting us. And one statistic I came across is that, you know, black people have lower rates of access to all sorts of um, helpful medical technologies, but we have a higher rate of amputation. In fact, I, I saw one quote that said that's the one the one type of surgery that we, that black people have more is amputation. And um, that, I'm going to look into that and see if there has been an increase. But that would suggest, I mean, if you've got amputated limbs, sometimes that's from diabetes, it would, but it always suggests that you didn't have the preventive care that would have avoided the need for such a radical type of surgery on your body. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's a sign of the poor and maybe worsening uh, health care available to black people in, in, in America. And when you do your study, can you look to see if it's a, a more predominant in the black man as opposed to the black woman? Mm. Because that's what I'm seeing. I'm seeing more black men amputees. Yeah, but, you know, part of it, you know, we have now, I I mentioned before, uh, the the United States has the highest incarceration rate in the world, actually in the history of Western civilization. Um, Black men are incarcerated at higher rates than anybody else. And needless to say, health care in prisons is horrific. So, it, I, you know, I'm speculating now, I haven't done the study, but I wouldn't be surprised if because there are so many black men incarcerated that that is taking a toll on their health. I did, I did see a study recently that linked incarceration to death rates, higher death rates mm-hmm. among black men. So if there's higher death rates linked to incarceration, certainly you know, morbidity or our disease rates and the consequences of it, like amputation, I I bet are connected as well. Right. And you that I would surprise if that has to do with mass incarceration. But thank you for raising that. I you're gonna see something about that in my book, definitely. <laughs> definitely uh, because it's a sign I mean it it really um, I don't want to call it a symbol because it's, it's a real life, you know, tragedy. But it it really reflects the kind of damage, physical damage. Of it. You know, these are life and death issues. This isn't just academic. People are dying because of these policies, or as you said, going around, you know, with their bodies cut up. This is this is, you know, this is serious. That's why I think that. These, these, this new trend of saying, oh, it's, it's, you know, there's something wrong. There was already something wrong with his body. That's why this happened to him. It's so dangerous. Because, again, then you, it, doesn't, it looks strange to you and me, but some people will say, oh, well, that's just, you know, that's just what happens to black people. 
they're, they're, they're inferior. Uh, do you have a, a time for one last call, or do you – if you want to get I, to the birthday party, I totally understand. <laughs> well, I also brought my son. He's roaming around oh. somewhere. <laughs> handed if, him off the minute I got here. <laughs> wow. If it's time to be a mom, I totally understand. <laughs> no, it's it's a good friend, so I'm not I'm not worried, but um but anyway, um I guess I, I could take one more quick I'll answer it quickly. Okay. A quick um, comment. I have uh, someone at one one one. I don't know the area code. If uh you are there from one 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 with a hand up and you pressed one, do you have a question or a quick comment? Not hearing it. Four one four. Are you there? Question or quick comment? Uh, yes, I'm here. Um, I just wanted to ask um, Mrs. Roberts, um, what things can we do to, I guess, uh, protect ourselves when we're going to the doctor? Mm. Yeah. Because uh, I. Oh, go ahead. Mm-hmm. No, go on. Because I've been reading a lot of information about how. Now white people do not get the care that they need when they go to the doctor. They're not yeah. getting the same. So Yeah. Yeah, there are there are studies um that have shown that. Um, for example, uh non whites getting less pain relief yes. uh, during surgeries. Mm-hmm. Um, getting different doses of medications on you know, on these theories mm-hmm. that our bodies are different, um, or that we're we're more vulnerable to becoming drug addicts, so we shouldn't get, you know, the pain relieving drugs. Um, all sorts of uh, ideas that are based on the you know the notion that black bodies are different, our skin is thicker. I mean, just all sorts of uh, backward kind of ideas and. Um, I think part of it, it sounds like you're already doing it, is just to be very informed. Okay. Um, I, you know, you can get a lot of information online now, medical studies. You know, you shouldn't believe everything that's online, but you can check if it's something published in a medical study. And um, sometimes they're hard to read, but sometimes they're not. I think we're, you know, I'm finding that I'm reading all sorts of genetic articles now and articles related to um, biomedicine. And you know you can you can understand them. They're not that complicated, but you could try. Um, another is to have a doctor you trust who you can run by um, what another doctor is proposing for you, you know, and say I you know can I trust this advice? Um, and just to you know to be knowledgeable about it. And then also, I mean, that's what you can do personally. I think also then to be involved in these issues. You know, we're going through healthcare reform now. Um, what can we do as uh, blacks and other uh, non-whites, people of color, to uh, have a say in this process so that whatever the system is, is going to serve us and not, um, not treat us as poorly as, um, as we've been treated in the past. Thank you. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Again, Professor Roberts, I am uh, extremely grateful for you taking time out uh, to share with us. Uh, I am certain that the uh, folks tuning into this broadcast and downloading it are going to find it incredibly uh, constructive. And uh, yet we, as you can see, there's a lot of interest in hearing what you have to say. Definitely we'll be contacting you to see if we can have you back on the program to uh, talk about your latest book and Shattered Bodies. Um, because uh, better, I, uh, Uh-huh. I think a lot yes, of folks would, would back and talk about Shattered Bonds, and then maybe when my book is published, you can have me back to talk about that one. For sure. One. For sure. Yeah. Again, Northwestern University's uh, Dorothy Roberts' incredible book, Killing the Black Body. Purchase it, read it, uh, and look out for the next one. Also, Shattered Bodies, uh, if you can get your hands on it. Shattered Bonds. Shattered Bonds, I'm sorry, Shattered Bonds. Um, if you can get your hands on some of her essays, those are incredibly constructive as well. Uh, thank you again for taking time out. We will definitely be in touch soon. And I would like to get information on the uh, studies uh, that show the effects of racism, the adverse health effects, because I've been trying to get my hands on those. So if you can point me in the I'll, right direction, I will shoot you an email to get that information. Send me an email to remind me. And, and that that's going to be a whole chapter in my next book, too. Yeah. Wow, yeah. yes. We will definitely be looking forward to having you back on the cows uh, as many times as you'd like to come back. Okay, thank you, and thanks for your program. Thank you, thank you. Okay, bye-bye. We'll talk to you soon. Can I ask a question? I'm sorry? Hello? I heard, uh, was that you, Justice? Yes, that was me. Ah, we should have got your question in as the last one. Well, darn, you... Don't even worry about it, because Wednesday you will be front and center uh, with questioning. That is my apologies for not getting you in uh, for the last question. I wish you could have stayed a little bit longer. Um, what What was your question? I'm curious just to uh, to hear. What was your question, Justice? My question was, um, does she have any um, other books for – hello? Yeah, we can hear you. My question was, does she have any other books um, for 10-year-olds and 5-year-olds? <laughs> that is an excellent question. See, if you could have asked that, maybe that would have been uh, – that would have planted the seed for her to perhaps write some books for younger non-white people so that they can start be uh, becoming informed about these issues because – uh, she talks about in the book that we uh, mostly talked about today, Killing the Black Body, she talks about how um, white people who probably are practicing racism have gone into high schools and sterilized. And, and when I say sterilized, that means that you do uh, an operation on a female and you make it so that she cannot have a child. Um, that they were going into high schools and doing this to predominantly black females. Uh, these are people that are, you know, 16 years old, 17 years old, not that much older than you. So, yeah, I don't think she has any books out for folks that are 5 or 10 at this point, but maybe that's something she should think about doing because definitely it's something that impacts uh, very young non-white people. Um, you know, 13-year-olds, 14-year-olds should start being informed about this because it is important and it does have an impact on them. Uh, so, yeah, I, in fact, I will email her because I want to get the information that she was talking about in terms of racism and how it affects non-white people's health. 
when I email her, I will send her that question that you think that. Do you think that would be constructive if she had books that were written for people that are your age, like 10 years old, 11, 12-year-olds, talking about this? Yes. Okay. I will put that in the email that you think she should perhaps think about getting some books out for younger non-white people so that they can get a better understanding uh, of these issues. Did you have another question, Justice? Um, no, I do not have any more questions. Oh, okay. Did you think the program was uh, was constructive? Yes, it was constructive, but most of it I didn't understand it. Mm. I uh, was thinking the language might be a little, uh, little bit high, um, not necessarily talking so that a 10-year-old could easily get it. Um, I suspect as you get older, it will be a lot easier for you to understand the things she was talking about today, and it will probably be a lot more important to you as you get a little bit older. Um, but as I said, Wednesday, this will not be a problem because we will have a white person on the show Wednesday, so uh, you will be asking a lot more questions. You're going to be starting the show asking questions, and we're going to make a much more uh, we're going to put much more effort into making sure that people talk so that you can understand on Wednesday because. We will have a white guest on Wednesday, so hopefully this will be uh, we'll do a better job on uh, on Wednesday. Okay. For sure. Um, I think there's still a lot of people on the line. Yes. Hello. Yes, I thought so. Uh, does anyone else have comments or thoughts uh, on the program? Uh, only thing I have is I wish you could have stayed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I had a couple of questions about uh, about Jesse Owens and. Um, in the uh, in the Olympics, in uh, Hitler rolling out his first curse, supposed to be the master. You know, he supposed to have the master race. So this was the time for for him to show that the guy he had out was going to be was going to win all the events. I wanted to ask her that. So. Hmm. Yeah, I, I definitely hope she can uh, she can come back to hang out. Again, because uh, she just she has a lot of work that focuses uh, explicitly on white supremacy. She uses the term in her book all throughout the book, and that's. Uh, and I wanted to ask another question about the uh, the uh, the virus that women get that causes cancer. Mm. I forgot the the HV virus or something, and they're supposed to have a shot uh, shot that they can give to young girls and mothers, I mean, young girls. Hmm. I wanted to I, ask. Hello? Yeah. I got a thought about that. Um, it doesn't really protect against HPV because there are a lot of different types of HPV, and it really doesn't protect all of the ones that prevent cancer. Is that a, uh, is that a man that transmits that disease? Uh, it can be transmitted both men and women. Men can get it too. And I thought that was kind of weird that they didn't develop something for males. I that bothered me because males can. I think the guy, if you look at the tree man, that's what he had. Uh huh. Oh. Because his his immune system wasn't be, wasn't able to fight at all. That's why. He, Grew those warts and everything. That's what he caught. Oh, okay. And it's only. I, 
if you want to, don't just take my word for it. It's on the Discovery Channel, and you can probably mm-hmm. find out through Google. Okay. But uh, I, go ahead. I don't, I don't think young girls should get it. I just don't because it doesn't really protect against, you know, I, I really don't think. Because they was, uh, don't, the, dovetail what you were saying. They was advocating that in the black, black, um, some of the black uh, high schools in the, in the nation about getting that shot. And I saw even, oh, yeah. even saw commercials with, you know, black mothers and their teenagers on the commercial. Some drug companies, but I haven't seen it in a while. So. Yeah, it's true. It's true. And they also, I was listening to uh, Dr. Uh, Jewel Pokram, she was also saying that the depot shots, they were doing a lot of experiments on black women in Africa yeah, yeah. with the depot shots. And she was saying that before, the depot shot was just used against, used on women who were retarded and they felt the best option was to give that shot. But before, it was not recommended that women should get the depot shot, but yeah, I wouldn't trust that HPV. Is that, that Depo Rivera? Yeah, Depo. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Professor, I, Professor Roberts. Would, oh, go ahead. I wouldn't trust that Depo shot either. Professor Roberts has a extensive chapter about that in her book where she talks about how it was tested on non-white people in other areas of the world and all the these harmful side effects. Uh, about the drug, that and Norplant, uh, and how they, they, these uh, drugs were aggressively marketed uh, to mostly black females, and sometimes they were even pressured into taking these drugs uh, like they would go for sentencing, and it would be you can either get a year on probation and take Norplant, or you can go to jail for seven years, like things like this to aggressively coerce wow. uh, non-white, mostly black females to taking these drugs that uh, she says is pretty much like temporary sterilization uh, and they had all these harmful side effects and are real difficult to get out. She has a lot of information about uh, Depo-Provera and Norplant in uh, killing the black body. So anybody, if you're interested in getting more information about that and how it relates to racism, white supremacy, get killing the black body. Uh, I also want to say, uh, Saye, you are on the line, so if you would like to say something, feel free. Your mic is open. Uh, and everybody else who was on, your your mic is still open. You can feel free to comment or question or what have you. Greetings. Greetings. Who is this? This is 720. 720. How are you doing, sir? Uh, intensely victimized. How are you? Uh, likewise. Likewise. I... Uh, have something to add. It uh, is indirectly related to birth rates. Um, I wish, uh, my hope is that uh, Mrs. Roberts will will also be able to hear this if she should hear the program again, I'll try to be brief. I don't know uh, how we controlled, so to speak, our 
birth rates before taking on the ways of white people who work to maintain the system of white supremacy. But as far as consent and being informed and destroying families is concerned, I would be remiss if I didn't at least uh, try to give this information. And uh, with your co-host, particularly to you, Little Justice, and to all younger and older children, non-white children who are victims of the system of white supremacy. Uh, There were four young children who were in a mountain site and decided to jump into a near freezing lake to take a swim. They were not criminals. They were not gangbangers. They were not crack users. They were simply trying to do something constructive with their lives. However, they weren't well-informed I suspect as a result of the system of white supremacy that, and this is for all our non-white children, for all of you, they weren't informed that jumping into near freezing water would make their bodies so cold that they couldn't move their arms or legs anymore. So I hope this will be constructive information to all non-white children so that perhaps we can increase our odds by at least one by at least one, so that we can get to have at least one more chance to even make a choice about children. Do not, little justice, and to all Robert's son, do not jump into near freezing water take this information do not jump into near freezing water because it will make your body so cold that your arms and legs will not work in the water and you will not be able to get out of the water do not 
jump into near freezing water. I hope that is constructive information. That's all I have to say. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for sharing. Um, I, I definitely think that is uh, constructive. Um, I would think for anyone, water safety, definitely important. I think white people put a lot of time and energy. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.